When it comes to the tragedy, there are women like my aunt that have stored away the memories of that night in the attic of their mind. Sometimes they rummage through it when someone like me comes along to ask. Sometimes they feel compelled to go through it, to remind themselves that they were there, that it happened. They can't bear the thought of throwing those memories away, but ultimately they matter little in their day-to-day -day lives. Arguably, they mattered little as soon as the shock of the tragedy had subsided. Once the media circus was over, the hospitals had emptied out, the roads had been cleaned up, it seemed everyone returned to their normal lives. My aunt finished college and defied norms to get a prestigious job as the only female manager in a steel factory in a different city. My neighbor became a professor. Her sister-in-law started a business. They all got married, they had healthy children, and their lives continued. Down the hill, four kilometers away from the factory, a different story unfolded. These women were not allowed to forget the tragedy. No matter how many times the roads were cleaned, the physical factory stood before them to remind them of what happened. They lost their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, children that night. And no matter how much time passed, the fact remained that all they had left of so many of their loved ones was memories. I, I don't know how old I am. I don't know how to count. But I know that I saw the day Bhopal was freed in 1947. We were freed from one tragedy only to stumble onto this one. Abhidhabi is referencing India's independence from the British in 1947. She is probably in her 80s, and she, like so many others, held on to their memories, and one of two things happened. Either they felt empowered to make change, or they felt the stigma of being a gas survivor, a gas victim, as they're called in football. Women like Hazrabi became activists. They stepped into roles they had never been allowed to be in before. Roles that they didn't even realize existed, all because someone needed to. Gurkha wearing parda honoring, that was the woman I used to be. But when we were surviving the night of the tragedy, there was no time for a burqa. There was no time for a parda. Should I have saved my children or taken care of the dead bodies or put on a burqa? This is the story of the Bhopal gas tragedy, of the men, women, and children who survived it, and the decades-long struggle for justice, compensation, and the right to clean drinking water. This is the story of the Bhopalis who were shaped, but not defined, by the disaster, of hope, of resilience, and of memory. This is They Knew Which Way to Run, Please note that this podcast contains depictions of death and loss that some people may find disturbing. I'm Molly Mulroy. And I'm Apoorva Dixit.
Episode six, we're not flowers, we're fire. In previous episodes, we finished telling you the story of Rashida B and the other hundred women who continued to fight almost 30 years for the right to a living wage as gas tragedy survivors. But that was only one branch of their activism. In fact, the group of activists continued to grow larger and broader, fighting for justice on a number of topics and protesting generally Union Carbide and eventually Dow Chemicals expansion. In February 2001, when Union Carbide and Dow Chemical signed their merger, we took 300 women to Mumbai. In Bombay, we painted Dow's entire office red and said that this is Bhopal's blood. If they are buying Union Carbide, then they also have to buy its responsibilities to us. When corporations acquire companies, it is common practice for them to not acquire their legal liability. So as far as Dow Chemical is concerned, they have nothing to do with Bhopal. They cannot be sued, and there is no appealing to them. So there is literally no corporation left to take responsibility for the gas tragedy and the current abandoned factory. In December 2001, we gathered brooms and got dirt from the factory that again we took to Bombay to their headquarters to ask them to clean up the mess they left. There we were told everything would get done and when we got back we learned we were banned from getting within 100 meters of the headquarters. Then we took our Jhadu Maro Dao Ko Hit Dao with the Brooms campaign to Africa. That's the name we have given the campaign that demands Dao clean up the factory that still stands here. If they don't, the women of Bhopal will show their anger by hitting them with the brooms. And it is not just Bhopal, but the women of the world. First, we went to Johannesburg, then to Switzerland, then Italy, Russia, France, Paris, Japan, everywhere. We did events throughout Europe. We went all over the world, wherever they had a CEO to give them a broom and make them understand the gravity of our situation. You are spreading poison not only in Bhopal, but the world over. We were never given justice, but maybe we can prevent the next Bhopal by altering people of the cost of a Dow factory. Wherever they want to put a factory, we ask if they have taken responsibility for Bhopal. And if they have not, then they have no right to continue putting down factories. What Rashida B. and Champa Devi are protesting is larger than Dow Chemical. It is the global phenomenon of environmental racism. The World Economic Forum defines environmental racism as a form of systemic racism whereby communities of color are disproportionately burdened with health hazards through policies and practices that force them to live in proximity to sources of toxic waste. As a result, these communities suffer greater rates of health problems attendant on hazardous pollutants. Sounds familiar, right? Clearly, we've been talking implicitly about this the whole series, but it's important to name it. In our last episode, we heard from Children Against Dow Carbide, 
about their trip to West Virginia to meet residents of what's known as Chemical Valley. One important thing that we did not mention were the demographics of this region. Unsurprisingly, the population of Chemical Valley is majority Black. Throughout the history of the United States, the worst pollution, environmental destruction, and industrial disasters have often fallen on the shoulders of the country's Black and Indigenous residents. Zooming out further, globalization has allowed corporations to use majority brown and black developing countries as essentially their landfills. This is how the story of Bhopal began. When an American corporation headquartered in Connecticut needed somewhere to dump lethal chemical stocks it had developed for World War II, chemicals like methyl isocyanate that Union Carbide plants in European countries all majority white developed countries were not even allowed to work with because their governments had banned them given how dangerous these chemicals were. The concept of environmental racism is also relevant when considering the different communities within Bhopal. Religion, caste, class, all of these factors influence the way people experience the consequences of the tragedy. The Union Carbide factory was built among the slums of Bhopal where the city's poorest residents, majority Muslim or lower caste Hindu, had formed a community. That community was then made into a permanent settlement when the government gave the residents property deeds, despite the government's knowledge of the dangers that the factory posed. And when disaster did inevitably strike, that community bore the brunt of it. Meanwhile, the wealthier residents, many of them upper caste Hindu, had a different experience of the disaster. Middle and upper class Popalis lived at a higher elevation and in houses with good ventilation, better insulating them from the gas leak in the first place. Then literacy, education, and legal documentation made it easier to actually receive compensation from the courts. And the long-term pollution of Popal's drinking water isn't as much of an issue for the wealthier residents who all have water filters installed in their households. The reason environmental racism exists is that it saves corporations money. Because the victims of these disasters are invisible to so much of the world, the people responsible are able to get away with ignoring the problem completely. And when the government is more interested in protecting corporations than its citizens, there's no one left to clean up the mess which leaves survivors no choice but to stand up and clean it themselves. In 2004, Rashida B. and Champa Devi were awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize in San Francisco for their part in fighting for the environment. They used the money they earned to give back to the Bhopal community. First, by establishing a center for treating gas and water-affected children, who are being born disabled. Second, we want to establish an award for uneducated women who know and fight against corporate injustices. We will give them rupees 50,000 and we will unite with their fight so that we can all win together for the world. Third, we wanted to give skills training to women who have too many mouths to feed, not enough hands to earn money. So we wanted to help them.
The center that Rashida B. and Champa Devi established is now called the Chingari Rehab Center, and it serves all of the children of gas and water-affected people. I mentioned it in an earlier episode when I introduced Rashida B. They have state-of-the-art equipment for each type of disability, like sound boots for diagnosing and treating deaf children, as well as teachers and therapists who specialize in disabilities and could, for example, teach a student to read in Braille and be sensitive to the needs of mentally impaired children. Art that the students had drawn hung all over the walls, and the day that I went to interview Rashida B. and Jampa Devi, the whole school was busy in an intense game of water and color throwing as part of holy celebrations. It was truly a beautiful sight. Another activist critical to the Bhopal story is Abdul Jabbar. He was one of Bhopal's most famous activists and the only one Apoorva's dad had heard of growing up. He led BGPMUS, the old guard NGO we introduced in episode four. He was a fairly soft-spoken and curt man, short, with a mustache. But what Apoorva found when she visited his office wasn't exactly what she was expecting. Here's what she told me after she met Abdul Jabbar for the first time in 2017. Um, it's in the middle of Old Popal, um, and everybody in the area, if you just ask for for him, mm-hmm. everybody will know where his office is. And okay. because it's not, you can't find it easily. <laughs> Google mm-hmm. Maps will get you to the area, but it will not get you to the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but like as we were walking up, like you could talk to anybody on the street, and they would be like, "Oh, you know." Uh, Mr. Jabbar, yeah, like just, you know, turn right there and go into that alley in there. So anyway, so we make it to this office and, and it's essentially this house. Um, and each room is set up with a different vocational training uh, camp of sorts. Like one room has all these computers. They're from the 90s or 20s. They're huge. So one room they have, uh, they're teaching folks how to type. Another room is set up with sewing machines, and you can see a lot of women um, sewing, uh, repairing clothing, or sewing new clothing that they sell, you know, to make money. And then finally, I came to Mr. Jabbar's office, which is just piled high with paperwork. Um, he, <laughs> you can see him in, you know, the back corner of the room, and, and he's like dimly lit by his computer, but most of the room is just decked in, in, files and newspapers and, and just all kinds of paper mm-hmm. um and and it's also pretty obvious that he, he spent more than one night in this room because it's attached to a bathroom and and you can tell that you know this is more than just an office like um people have lived here when they needed to uh-huh. in 1986 jabbar and bgp mus started bi-weekly saturday meetings at bopal's yadgar ishajani park a memorial that marks India's fight against British rule. Here's Apoorva describing one of those meetings to me the day after she went. It's a huge park, right? Mm -hmm. It's essentially like at one of the gates to the park, they're all assembled in like a half semicircle. And and so all the men are sitting on the steps and all of the women are sitting on the the ground right in front of the steps. Hmm. And they're all facing this, you know, little wall 
mm-hmm. um, that just keeps the bushes in. And and right behind them, they have set up this sign, you know, that, that declares their name. Mm-hmm. It's only like maybe 20, 30 people, mm-hmm. which is more than I was expecting, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we came late, so I'm sure there were more that, that walked away before we got there. And the moment he walks in, he... <laughs> He tells two of the guys in the corner to, you know, he, he tells them, I tell you every time, you know, you should put the sign higher. <laughs> um, and so, so they're, you know, quick at work fixing up the sign. <laughs> um, and in the distance, you can see that they kind of made an unofficial, like, garbage dump site right outside the walls of, these, of this park. Hmm. Um, and he points that out. He, you know, he makes a passing comment about how terrible it is that they've started dumping their trash right there you know they're ruining the beauty of this historic park where they've been meeting for so many years Hmm. um and then he goes into like more official business he tells them that they have two ongoing court cases then he goes into uh telling them about how december 3rd is coming up that is the anniversary of the tragedy it will be the 34th anniversary of the tragedy and he's talking about how they're going to have to collect funds he refuses to take foreign funding so most of the funding is local uh, most of the funding is by the gas victims themselves they all contribute 20 30 however many rupees that they can um keep in mind that 70 rupees is equal to one dollar oh wow um and then in the end he ends with his sermon and he essentially just pumps them up and reminds them that they're fighting the good fight. He knows that people will tell them that it is over and it is time to move on, but that they shouldn't let those people get uh, to them and, and that they should, you know, maintain faith that there is, like justice has still not been one and that there's still a lot to be done he recounts a story of how he um was in the hospital a few months ago and the doctor told him that it was time to retire uh the doctor told him that you know mr jabbar like this is this is when you go home and relax after a lifetime of fighting and instead he left the hospital and came immediately to this meeting um and so, you know, the people in front of him that he was addressing, he said they fuel him and he fuels them and that they must keep going on. But essentially he ended on a high note of their fight is righteous and they need to keep going. Um, and then as everybody stood up and was about to disperse, one of the women uh, goes, but what about our chance? Hmm. And... And Mr. Jabbar laughs, and he goes, okay, sure, let's do a few. Um, And so he chanted, the new era, and everybody else would respond, is coming. Um, And they did this a couple of times, and and you could tell that they've done this for decades. And that's how the meeting ended. Just like Rashida B. and Satu Satarangi, Abdul-Jabbar dedicated his life to the Bhopal gas tragedy survivors. Along with leading mass protests and providing skills training, his NGO filed hundreds of court cases. You may remember us mentioning that there were multiple rounds of compensation. Abdul-Jabbar and BGP-MUS were among the reason why. 
they won the gas survivors a second and third round of increased compensation. Abdul-Jabbar passed away in late 2019 due to vision and lung complications as a result of inhaling methyl isocyanate during the gas tragedy. He was awarded one of India's highest honors, the Padma Shri, a few months after his passing for his work for the Indian people throughout his lifetime. I spent a lot of time thinking about the counterfactual, the alternate universe where the tragedy did not happen. Would Bhopal be different today? This is a question I asked at the end of almost all of my interviews, and the answer varied pretty dramatically. We wouldn't be sick. We are all so sick for so long. There is no no correct medicine in all of these gas-related hospitals. There is no one there to properly treat you. Now we just live pill to pill. And if the medicine runs out, then sickness, sickness, sickness. We are slaves to the medicine to live a normal life. To just walk around. While some survivors, like Abida B, thought about what their health might be like, others, like Bano B, spoke of their unrealized aspirations. Before the gas tragedy, my kids studied at Railway Bal Temple. Every Sunday, we would go out as a family. We would laugh and have a good time. We used to think that we would really educate our kids. They studied at Railway Bal Temple. But after everything, our heart's desires never made it out of our heart. Our kids weren't even able to get educated. Our son just ended up as a, in construction. He had even gone to Railway Bal Temple. So he knew how to read. It was very good education there. Teachers used to call us and tell us they were doing well. It would make us proud to hear that they had done well in their exams. We had high hopes. One would be a doctor or one would be a Daroga police chief. We had such big dreams to educate them. Even the three that studied, they failed out of eighth grade. Here's a conversation Apoorva and I had while she was still in India about her findings. In the interviews that I've been doing in, uh, I'm going to call these the police line apartments because that's what the locals call it. But one of the girls I talked to who's, you know, like our age, you know, I asked her a question that I ask everyone. And that's, do you think Bhopal would be any different today if the tragedy had not happened? Um, and in the upper, in the higher income neighborhood across the board, people said no. Um, really? People, yes. 
Which was shocking to me too. Like this is a huge tragedy that killed tens of thousands of people. You don't think it will it affected the development of Some- the city? Right, right. No, almost across the board, people are like, no, like today everything is back to normal. Um, people okay. died, but that's about the only thing that changed. <laughs> and however, when you talk to when you talk to the income class that was more affected by the tragedy, they will tell you that yes, Bhopal was very much affected. You think Bhopal would be different today if not for the tragedy? Which Yes, of course that Dal. There might be a lot more talented people today if they had not died. They would have helped develop the city. Is there any advantage to remembering this tragedy? Of course, those who left us should be remembered. That way, this will never happen again. The person that you just heard from is Ranu. She's a college graduate and she lives in the police line apartments which is government-subsidized housing a few blocks away from Judge Colony, my neighborhood. We're about to hear from her sister, Jyoti, who is in college now. Their father is a construction worker, and they both work part-time jobs to supplement their household income. The sisters had a pretty different take on the tragedy than what I heard in the higher-income neighborhoods. You think they should teach about the tragedy in school? Yes, people should know what happened and how it happened. See, they didn't teach my generation. So maybe the next generation simply will not know at all. Our dad told us everything. If that never happened, maybe we would not even know what happened. What's interesting is Jyoti and Ranu's dad is like my dad and my neighbors in that he lived on the same hill as them the night of the tragedy. Eidgah Hill. So he is not as gas-affected as the activists in J.P. Nagar. And yet, he had passed on a much greater consciousness of the tragedy to his daughters, who were about the same age as me. The poor of Popal, regardless of geography, often carry the memory of this tragedy. Popal today without the tragedy? would be good. It would be fine. It's been so long. What are they doing with that money in the reserve bank? Milking it? They made this whole polytechnic a roundabout on whose money? Use your own money. Don't use our money. In fact, this was a sentiment I heard often, that the gas made Bhopal rich. A lot of the compensation money never made it to the survivors and instead was used to line the pockets of politicians and fund their pet projects of constructing lavish roundabouts, highways, and other infrastructure in the wealthier neighborhoods while ignoring the poor ones. Well, what do you think? You think it would be different if the tragedy never happened? That was actually one of my original questions when I first started this research. From what I gathered of the city, it was up and coming. And I wondered if the tragedy had changed that at all. Like how had the trajectory of both people and the city changed? 
I was convinced that it was a dramatic departure from what it was supposed to be. So I was pretty shocked when people told me that, oh, you know, it would be about the same. I also thought a lot about how I would be different today. Would my dad have decided to stay in Bhopal if the city had developed more? How many people like my dad may have stuck around? And it's interesting too that you weren't even born until 10 years after the tragedy, but if it hadn't happened, your life would have been so drastically different, probably. We certainly wouldn't have met in Mrs. Bradley's class in seventh grade, for sure, if you grew up in India. And maybe your interests would have been totally different too. Maybe you wouldn't be interested in all these things we're talking about in this podcast, activism and feminism and justice. Mm, maybe. Eh, you'd probably still be interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
their in-laws said go back to Bhopal. Thousands of them are now back and they are suffering with their disabled kids. These women have found strength in their pain. They have found purpose. If someone asks me why I go, if they ask what I'm gaining, I say there's nothing to gain. There's nothing. Think about all that we have lost. I'm not fighting for myself. I'm fighting for those who can't. People tell me all the time that nothing will happen. They ask me why I'm going, but I believe something will happen. As long as I can breathe, I will go. As long as I have this strength, I will go. My strength comes from my pain. I have lost so many people. My parents, my kids, my family were separated. It gives me tears. It gives me strength. Today I sit alone, but I fight for them. I remember my daughter who always used to go with me. I do it in her memory. She was water affected. I fight for everyone, everyone in Bhopal who has suffered like me in my sibling. We all are the same and I fight for them. I might die fighting, but I will always fight. They gained skills, gained knowledge, and cultivated a passion that they're now passing on to their kids. So much. I had never been to the collectors. I didn't used to go anywhere. I used to go to school and then back to the house. But now I've been to Delhi, Bombay, everywhere. I've heard people's stories. So I felt so much happiness that I can understand other people's pain and also empower them. I had never seen the collector's office. But now I know where the collector's office is. Going with the movement, I learned which paperwork is needed, where it is submitted, what the public works department is supposed to do, how to file a complaint if it's not doing those things. I have learned so much. I also help people out if they need something done. They seek me out if they need something done because they know I know. I will teach my kids how to fight. I will teach them why we fight. I already take them. I want them to fight for their right. If I die, I want them to get their rights. Sarita and Safreen are the new generation of protesters who first started activism holding their parents' hands. I couldn't go because of my exams. My brother went and I really wanted to go but I couldn't. There was a lot of pressure from the family too to not send out the daughters. My family would say things like, it's dangerous, it will spoil her. She will get out of control. But my parents always supported me. You need to believe in something. My dad always told me that as long as I'm right, then the world is right. 
एंड इफ आई एम रॉन्ग देन द वर्ल्ड इज रॉन्ग थिंक अबाउट योर सपोर्ट रहा मुझे शुरू से तभी मैं इतनी आगे बढ़ी Vishnu Bai and Shahzadi B remained determined, easily falling into old protest chants that they've repeated countless times in their lives. I will fight until my dying breath. In the coming generation, I want them to know that they should never admit defeat. This is not charity. This is justice. It's not about money. It's about humanity. Either give us our loved ones back. or give us our rights if you can give us our loved ones back then we wouldn't ask for anything nothing hum apna adhikar mangte nahi kisi se bheek mangte no matter our desperation fulfill our demands apna adhikar hi mangte jo ki aaj tak we ask for our right not charity भोपाल भोपाल की पुलती है that fueled them and the hope that they feel for the next generation of women to begin life knowing it we were just housewives living normal lives but something in our faith put us down this path it's only via this goal that has led us to this level we wouldn't have protested and today we wouldn't be able to help these kids and girls should never think that her life is only in the kitchen or only to earn money she should think that i have been given so much strength and if i bring it out she will be taken aback at the endless supply she has if women recognize their own strength then they are invincible they are undefeatable they will bring revolution and they will win this world back by revolution i want to tell these girls to recognize how their strength can change the world we used to be scared to go around alone in our own country but now we have wandered around all alone all over the world to this day i don't know how to write but all i know is to see my goals through and so here we are and we are going to keep fighting do not stop everyone lives their own lives but life is so small living just for yourself try living for others that's a whole other fun today i see the smiles of these children and i feel 
my struggle was worth it. You've been listening to They Knew Which Way to Run. Tune in next time for our finale, where we'll talk about how, more than 35 years later, the world still has not learned the lessons this disaster has to teach us. We encourage you to check out our website at www.theyknewwhichwaytorun.com, where you can learn more information about the tragedy, see photos of the survivors, and make a donation to NGOs on the ground still fighting for justice today. You can also read a transcript of this episode. This podcast series is written, edited, and produced by me and Molly Mulroy. Quinn Mulroy is our sound editor and associate producer. If you liked this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and follow us. All the interviews used in our podcast were conducted by Aporva Dixit, both independently and while working with Sampavna Clinic and photographer Francesca Moore. Our head of marketing is Shreya Zoshi. Our transcription specialist is Avi Dixit. Our copy editor is Julia Hamilton. Our cover art was designed by Amy Zhang. Our website designer is Liliana Brusich. And all of our music is composed by Derek Renfro. Very big thank you to everyone who supported us with this podcast. And an especially big thanks to the following Bhopalis for sharing their stories for this episode. Abida B, Hazra B, Rashida B, Banobi, Ranu, Jyoti, Lakshmi Thakur, Raisa B, Ansuya Bai, Guddu B, Nasreen B, Sarita, Safreen, Vishnu Bai, and Champa Devi. Also, thank you to our voice actors. Preeti Mantekar, Meena Kesargad, Rachna Dixit, Preeti Arora, Shika Rati, Vertika Shukla, Dure Nurani, Nandini Basu, Jyoti Narayan, and Garima Saxena. I'm Apoorva Dixit. And I'm Molly Mulroy. Thank you for listening.